from GRNE Solar. This. This. This is What's Up. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to What's Up. What's up? Again, this is two episodes in a row, Marie, that I'm coming in hot and you're just... Uh, I know. I, I, I think you just steal so much of the thunder that I'm like, I, I don't want to like blow these people's eardrums off. <laughs> That's the point. That's why they're listening. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm gonna let you, next episode, you're doing the intro. And I if you're not the happy intro enough, episode. we're doing it again. Yeah, we'll just keep Magic going that. until we're just like sweaty yes. and just, you know, waterlogged and just ugh, yeah. out of breath. <laughs> Uh, but thank you everybody for tuning in to another episode of what's up your favorite sustainability and renewable energy podcast obviously this is ryan marie here again we don't have connor today so it's just the ogs mm-hmm. on this one but the last couple of episodes we've done have had a lot of just our internal team kind of talking you know as, as the year kind of comes back around the start of the season you know we're making sure that we are producing the best stuff that we can for all of our listeners out there. And this is going to be our first episode of the season, right? I believe that has an actual interview in it. So I know any of our listeners that always love hearing from other people, here you go. Merry, you know, happy new year, Merry new year, whatever. Happy Easter. <laughs> if you want to. Um, right. Yeah. Today are our, our interviews with uh, John and Glenn who are the, they're directors of, of separate institutions, but they together partner up for this policy advocacy for 30 million solar homes, which is a whole project idea initiative that they're kind of pitching at the federal and local levels. We're talking to them and they have, and I remember as they forgot to mention, and we talked about before we started recording, the advocacy day on on April 8th. So that's going to be, as of this podcast release, and it's going to be tomorrow. So we'll get some more information on that specifically, and we'll link it down in the show notes for everybody. So you can make sure to go to that. It's a whole day of action advocacy. So make sure that you get in touch and go to their website and you know find out because this is a whole huge idea on putting solar on more homes, which you know, as any of our listeners would know at this point, Marie and I are really big fans of. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, we have John who's coming up in the interview and he works at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. And then we have Glenn who is, sorry, Glenn Blurand and John Farrell. Glenn is from Soul United Neighbors. Exactly what Ryan said, we're, we're gonna be talking about the, the initiative for 30 million solar homes. And what I really like about this, actually, let me back up for a minute. So we got in touch with them through um, Zach from the Indiana chapter of Solar United Neighbors. So shout out to Zach. Thank you for connecting us with Glenn and John. And going moving into what 30 million solar homes is, we won't go too much in depth because it's great to hear from, again, John and Glenn about it. Um, but it's a really digestible, like this obviously isn't the official bill that they're posting online, but it's super digestible what they put together here. And it's, it's a mixture of, new new programs to um, implement and then it's also rehabbing what's already there uh, to really push solar forward and make it attainable and take action for climate and economic impacts and then also tackling racial inequality which all of those in their own right are are huge deals and something that everybody needs to, you know, pause and take a look at. It was a good conversation and they are so passionate about what they do, whether it be in their own 
organization or together coming together on this bill. Yeah, I, and you're exactly right. There's a lot that we we dove into here. We probably could talk to these guys for another hour. I honestly, mean, yeah. they're the idea and the initiative is so in depth and we'll link in the notes too. There's like 13 pages worth of, of details on everything they want to be pushing and you know, from everything from on the job training to, as Marie mentioned, equitable distribution to community solar to you know, extensions and expansions of federal programs, whether it's REAP grants, whether it's federal tax credits, whether it's everything. Uh, we, we talked about other forms of energy too and, and storage and efficiency. There's so, so much that in, is in depth here. So I really would, I really would challenge all of our listeners to go and, and do some more research and you'll know, look into it because this is something that any, anybody who's listening to this podcast is going to agree with that this is something that needs to be pushed and focused on as far as like an infrastructure project is going to go for the country, but also then getting involved with them to be able to show your support, you know, at the, the national level, because this is something that should be going on everywhere. So. Yeah, this is what I like. I like this bill is more at the federal level. They're rolling it out at the federal level. Honestly, and maybe I'm just completely ignorant to this, so challenge me if I'm wrong. Things that could roll out on the federal level are so much more straightforward. It's like, this is what it is, black and white. When it rolls out at a state level, it is like a tornado. Just like a kid, think about a kid with like finger paint. It just like goes chaos. And it's like, rule after rule after rule and it's just oh my gosh so if you're just writing me a credit for my taxes so much easier than like file this and then jump through this hole it's crazy well, here's the problem with that is that's how it exists right now federally is that much of a, a tornado and it, so federally is i feel like you get more of that straightforward where it's like hey here's what we want to do and then the actual implementation of that is like this is a lot more challenging than they said and that's why yeah. it turns into a tornado. But you're exactly right. It, it needs to be more streamlined, which is, I think, what these guys are really looking to, to do with this program, too. Yeah. So before we get into the interview, a couple things to mention to you guys. As always, this podcast is sponsored by GRNE Solar. So make sure you go to grnesolar.com. They're the Midwest's number one leader for renewable energy systems. Of course, if you're looking for anything ground-mounted, roof-mounted, you want large-scale commercial solar, residential solar, they're the ones who have you covered. They can handle everything themselves. They're completely in-house. So they're the guys that can do everything. So go visit them at grnesolar.com. And you can find them on all the social medias at grnesolar. Additionally, Marie, you're a big fan of meal prep kits, right? Oh, yeah. Doing that all the time. I just started uh, just started a couple new ones too. You know, you're always trying out everything, trying some new ones. The one that we have for you guys awesome, awesome program, you know, is going to be the most sustainably developed, resourced and farm to table option you can have out there. It's nutrition for longevity. So obviously we talked to these guys, you, you had that, uh, that interview a couple back with our regenerative, it's still a mispronounced. Still can't do it, can you? Regenerative. Farming. Exactly. Yeah. One with, thing I can't say that you can say. <laughs> I, I can't do it. I don't know why. I just can't. But in our, in our interview with them, uh, you know, obviously they have the, the best sustainable food options, the healthiest options for you possible. So nutrition for longevity, we want you guys to take advantage of their meal prep box. So they send you a really nice and easy box. Everything goes together super well. It's, it's actually very easy compared to some of the other meal prep kits that I've gotten where, you know, it's hours worth of work so you can eat for 10 minutes. It's very easy, goes together 
highest quality foods and ingredients you can possibly get. So what you guys can do a special offer for our listeners <clears throat> is you go to nutritionforlongevity.com slash what's up. That's W-A-T-T-S-U-P. And you can also use the promo or the coupon code what's up. This is spelled the exact same way. W-A-T-T-S-U-P. And that's going to give you 10% off of your order for a nutrition for longevity box. So get your meal prep boxes today. Visit GRNE Solar and hope you guys enjoy the interview. Right. Well, welcome, everybody. Thank you so much for joining in. Marie and I are very honored today to be joined by two guests. We usually only have one, so this is always going to be fun with two different people, but they are partnering up for an amazing project going on. So we have Glenn Brand, who is the Director of Policy for Solar United Neighbors, and there's another word in there that I forgot, policy and advocacy, right? Um, and then we have John Farrell with us, the co-director for the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, and a whole bunch of other words that he said in between there. That is a really long title. So you guys, thank you so much for two of you for joining us today. If you want to just give a quick background about yourself and your, um, your separate organizations, then we'll move a little bit into the 30 million solar homes you guys are partnering for. So Glenn, I don't know if you want to go first. I'm glad to, and thanks very much for, for having us um, to talk about uh, this joint important project that we're Embarking on, um, I uh, am the uh, policy and advocacy director for Solar United Neighbors. My name is Glenn Brand. We're an organization that really puts distributed solar at the very foundation of, of what we think is uh, our new energy future. Um, we're not opposed at all to uh, utility scale solar and other kinds of solar, but distributed solar rooftop and, and community solar is really our focus very much approach this uh, from a practical point of view. We help run solar co-ops or solarized programs all over. And the, you know, I think what makes us a little different from a lot of other organizations is this practical knowledge of the the market through the solarized programs. And then my job, of course, is to help our folks uh, in our various states to mobilize and advocate for uh, pro-solar policy, particularly rooftop and community solar policy. John, how about yourself? A little background on uh, on yours and what you guys do. Yeah, well, I just had to say, uh, I'm not just partnering with Glenn and Solar United Neighbors on this. I've also been a participant in one of their solar co-ops. I have solar on my roof, courtesy of a co-op that they organized here in Minnesota. And I've also been serving on the board of the organization uh, as a longtime friend and colleague of Anya Schoolman uh, and the great work that they're doing. So very much an alignment uh, between our two organizations. Um, so I'm co-director of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Our uh, national nonprofit has a broader scope in terms of building up local power over the local economy and opposing corporate concentration. Uh, so in the energy sector, and I direct our energy democracy initiative, we apply that by pushing back against monopoly utility policies and advocating for more customer control over their energy future and community control over the energy future, whether that's through community choice policies that let communities choose where their electricity comes from collectively or individually by doing things like rooftop solar. Uh, And so the 30 million solar homes program for us was really a great opportunity to talk about at a national scale, the kinds of energy democracy things that we've uh, believed in for so long and have worked on with Solar United Neighbors. That's perfect. No, I love that. And that that works in so well because as anybody who's listening to this or, or the four of us know here, sitting here that 
you know, pushing back against monopolies and increasing consumer control is pretty much exactly what renewables were designed to do. <laughs> you, know, you know that having solar on your roof in our, our office in Palatine, Marisa has solar on that roof too. So like it's just, it works perfectly in between here. So I, I'm glad to hear the organizations are together. So we're here and you guys, your partnership in, in everything here is on the 30 million solar homes. And this project advocacy, I, I'm probably understating what the actual scope of it is, but give, give our listeners a little bit of background. What, what is the idea behind here? Obviously it's kind of in the name, 30 million solar homes. Like we're looking to have 30 million homes with solar on them, but what on a broader scale, what does that actually mean? And I'll well, you- John, John will start because really John was the inspiration for this project. Um, he wrote an op-ed, uh, I guess it was a blog, blog post originally and then was picked up in the solar press. And it really resonated with a lot of people. So he, he laid out this vision that I'd love to hear John talk about. Yeah, I'm happy to, Glenn. Um, and I'd love Glenn to talk. I think he does such a good job articulating kind of what the impact and sort of the real world uh, uh, impact of this project and this co- uh, coalition work would be. But I mean, it really started about a year ago. Uh, you know, we're, we've now, we're at, we're at our, our pandemic anniversary, as some of my colleagues are calling it uh, at the ILSR offices. Um, and, and just this real uh, moment of sort of reckoning with the impact the pandemic was having on our lives, the way it was impacting our economy, uh, the way that we had sort of a compounding climate crisis on top of that. And then as a resident of Minneapolis, just a couple months into the pandemic, we had the murder of George Floyd by police and a really stark reminder of racial inequality. And, and this project really rose up, uh, or was conceived of out of this desire to figure out, is there a way that, first of all, is there a way that I can do anything meaningful in these crazy things that are happening in the world uh, and that ILSR can say something meaningful? Uh, but is there a solution that we can offer that really addresses all three of these things that you know, can, can get at the climate crisis, can get at the economic crisis that COVID has caused and that can address uh, persistent racial inequality. And I mean, solar is a perfect answer to that. You know, as you were saying, Ryan, like it's it's not just a way we push back against monopolies. It's it's ridiculously popular. I mean, if you talk to people about anything in America, there's rarely something that 90% of folks uh, will all agree is a good thing and that we should do more of. And solar is one of those things, uh, which is terrific. And so this program, this uh, this this idea was essentially let's look at the places around the world where they've got the most solar, uh, where, you know, where the, the leading edge. So you look at like Hawaii, one in four households in Hawaii has solar on the roof. In Australia, almost one in three households has solar on their roof. Um, and so we know it's doable. And so if we take that and we translate it to the United States, we say, okay, well, what if we said our ambitious goal is to get to where other folks are already at? One in four homes having solar, that's about 30 million American homes. And how do we design a federal program uh, to uh, address these, these crises uh, that will get us to that ambitious number of 30 million solar homes? I had no idea that like Australia was one in four. I, I had no idea that was, it was that highly populated of having solar. I mean, you know, solar is like very popular. It's around the world and the United States is always lagging behind in green technologies <laughs> and everything. But like, I didn't know, I, you know, I work in solar. I had, had no idea the scope of what, how far behind we are, actually. I think it's, I mean, it's worth noting the scale or challenge. So right now we're somewhere between two and three million rooftop solar installations in the United States. Uh, I think we're creeping up to the big three million mark. 
pretty soon. Um, so when we're, we have, we, we're announcing an, an ambitious plan, it is really ambitious. 30 million from, mm -hmm. so let's say it's 3 million. You can see this a scale, scale issue, but that's what it really is going to take to make a, a difference with the issues that John raised. It's also the, the, the greater the scale, the greater the benefits. And so the, uh, just if we only focus on the jobs uh, from distributed solar, uh, it would have an enormous impact. And the great thing about solar, it's, it's distributed solar, is it's spread out all across the country, right? So this is not just a solution for, you know, people in urban areas or, or just people in rural areas. Um, it doesn't matter what part of the country they're in. Of course, the solar resource is a little better in Arizona than it is in Minnesota, but it's working great in Minnesota. And so, um, you know, I think, you know, John talked about the popularity of distributed solar um, or solar in general. And it is true that when you ask people across party lines, they're very favorable for the kinds of energy independence uh, and reduce energy costs or the control of their energy costs that, that solar can provide. Um, there really isn't another technology that's, that, that can do this. Um, obviously, energy efficiency is a part of all of this, and I don't want to set that apart. You know, it's all one and the same in many ways in practice, but that's the scale. And so that kind of, that vision that John laid out in this op-ed is really what got us all excited. Um, number one, it takes a lot of boldness to say something like that. Uh, but then the hard part really is what we've been doing in the last uh, six months is figuring out what policies would get us there, how much it would cost, what's the investment, what's the benefits. And that's where we're, that's where we're at now. And I think before we go any further, if people want to get an idea of the project and specifically the policies that we've developed, they can go to the website for the project, which is 30millionsolarhomes.org, 30millionsolarhomes.org. And there, you know, people can sign a grassroots petition, individuals, there's also an organizational sign-on letter to Congress um, that has been signed now by nearly 300 national, state, and local organizations, and that runs the gamut of solar businesses, uh, both, you know, big ones, um, national ones, and also smaller businesses all over the country, but advocacy groups, equity focus groups, uh, health focus groups, faith focus groups, uh, and of course, you know, a lot of climate and environmental folks. Um, so that has been what's been so exciting is that we've been working on the vision but really the nuts and bolts of, of generating the policy. And so that's where people should go to find out more about the specifics. And of course, we, we can get into some of them now. Yeah, and I can tell it seems like you guys really have been digging into it because oftentimes when you do hear about these big ideas or initiatives, it's simply that, it's an initiative, you know, where it's just, hey, this is something we should do, but not often getting involved in the actual policy and the cost of it because as anybody could tell you, yeah, oh, yeah that idea is great. Like, that's cool. Sweet. Well, how are we going to do it? So actually by digging into it, you're getting much further in. I feel like it's going to be even more successful. Yeah. I just want to say one other thing about the 30 million number and you know, John sort of alluded to where, where the number came from, right? It's sort of the translation of the success in Hawaii and Australia. But I think it's really important to have a, a number like this. And in some ways it's arbitrary, by it, but in, in many ways it, 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 it's not because it, you know, we're big supporters of 100% clean energy transitions, right? But you, 
the public doesn't know what 100% clean energy is or how to conceive of it, yeah. but they know what a solar rooftop looks like. They know what if there's 10 on their block and they can imagine what it would be like if one in four of their neighbors had solar. And that kind of scale, I think it's really important for people to be able to visualize and concretize um, these kinds of ambitious goals. Um, and uh, we love the 100% stuff and we support it strongly. Of course, we want to see as much distributed solar in, in those plants as possible. Um, but I think that that's really what has captivated a lot of people uh, is this, this vision that they can really see. Yeah, and in my head, that, that to me, to like the average person, I'd say if I call myself the average person, would, it seems more attainable, right? To say, hey, look on your block. One in four people in here is going to have solar panels on their house. That seems way more attainable as far as like, a, you know, if you're trying to pitch this nationally as a federal goal, as opposed to we're going to be 100 percent renewable just because, it, you know, for the average person, you're thinking about that. What does 100 percent mean? How does that go? And then obviously that leads into a whole different conversation about intermittency and all kinds of problems that go on there. So I, it's, it's good you guys have an attainable goal, too that people can really measure. Because as far as pushing this on the federal level, it's kind of what you have to do, I feel like with the voters, is make sure that this is something that like, oh yeah, okay, that makes sense, like that's cool. So as far, one of the things that uh, that I wanna jump back to what John said is that making it equitable for, for everyone. And I know there's been a lot of different programs too for low income communities to make sure that they have access to solar. Because as any of us will know, one of the big challenging parts right up the front is the cost for it. So it sounds like you guys have made that kind of a core tenant, but how much when you were starting, you were writing that op-ed as part of this, was that a core focus to make sure this is equal access to everybody? Well, it's really been baked in since the beginning. You know, the original op-ed essentially said that we should direct, you know, two thirds or more of any kind of federal dollars specifically at communities that have missed out at the solar opportunity. Uh, some folks like to talk about it as like a solar desert, you know, where are the places where solar hasn't been happening? And, you know, so we're wrestling with a couple things here. We're wrestling with, you know, number one, with any technology when it's new, it tends to be more expensive at first, which allows wealthier folks to have access to it first. Mm -hmm. uh, but usually as it gets adopted, the price goes down and it diffuses and whatnot. So, you know, we're not, we're not trying to fix that per se, like that's just the natural way that technology diffuses. But what we're saying is, look, if we're going to use federal dollars to encourage the development of solar, if we're going to try to ambitiously go after this goal, then let's really make sure that we're getting uh, to the folks that haven't had access to solar. Um, and so, it, like I said, it's it's been baked in from the beginning in terms of, you know, one of the ways we're thinking about this is there are lots of energy assistance programs. You know, the federal government already spends billions of dollars every year helping folks pay their electric bills. Well, instead of shoveling money in that way, which basically just goes directly to utility companies. Right. Let's, let's put on solar on the rooftops of those homes. Let's you know, hook them up to community solar projects where they can get a discount on their bill. Let's just make sure that everybody who is currently getting dollars from the federal government to support them and paying their energy bill having, and being energy burdened has a different way to get that energy right. uh, from a solar array that will provide it to them in perpetuity and not require uh, continued annual infusions from the federal government. So to me, it just seems like a really smart, it's a, it has this dual role of it is an equitable way to approach this. And it's also just really good policy. We are finding yeah. a way to reduce the way that we have to subsidize folks uh, paying their energy bills. But there's really a whole ecosystem around this, right? It's not just saying, 
let's get solar on the homes of folks who have had a hard time paying their bills, whether they live in cities or in rural areas, you know, there are folks that, that struggle with that uh, across the spectrum, but also that by putting those solar arrays in those communities, we have the chance to uplift those folks, not just in terms of lowering their energy bill, which can be a significant portion of their income, but by getting them a good job installing solar uh, that will make it so that their energy bill is no longer such a big deal, like it's right. true for most middle-class folks. And so that's a really big part of this program is to combine not just the investment in solar in a way that reduces the energy bills and burdens for many, many people, millions and millions of Americans, but also to make sure that we're very deliberate about training people that, you know, we're going to have to rapidly expand how much solar we do. As Glenn said, you know, we're going from 3 million to 30 million uh, and making sure that the folks that can get those jobs are people who really need them, who have, you know, traditionally been locked out of the workforce for one reason or another, mm -hmm. uh, the clean energy workforce, uh, but who would have a chance to really benefit from getting into the solar economy. Right. That is it's yeah. the future of the solar project or any infrastructure project, which is why infrastructure has always been pitched at the federal level. Everyone can get into it, regardless of education level or income level or job experience. There is something for everybody to be able to get into an infrastructure, much like, like solar would be. Ryan, I want to add something about our approach to equity. We, the third major organizational partner in the 30 Million Solar Homes Project is the Initiative for Energy Justice, um, and uh, a lot of people have heard of the, the co-director of that group, or until recently, uh, Dr. Shalanda Baker, who's now joined the Biden administration uh, to work on energy equity issues. Um, but she has, um, she was the original director or the co-director when the project started. Now she's gone to the Biden administration and Subin Devar as, is, is her, uh, her colleague there and has been an essential piece of this approach because one of the things they did early on is convened a group of about 40 uh, equity stakeholders. Uh, these are equity organizations, equity focused org organizations or any justice ones. And we had them take a look at the policies that we were proposing. They had a lot of policies that, that um, they came up with that we have integrated into the policy project. So it really has been uh, an important part of this from the start. We do see it as, you know, there's a political aspect to this too, right? Is the more people benefit from something, right? The, the greater the political support for it. Yeah. Um, that's why I think it's just super important that people see the benefits spread widely. Um, and I'll give you another example. And, you know, we may not think of it sometimes in terms of equity, but uh, rural communities are solar deserts in many cases. Um, and uh, there's a great program, federal program, it's been operating for years called the Rural Energy for America program. The acronym is REAP. Um, that program is super underfunded. There, that helps to fund all kinds of solar projects for rural businesses, agricultural businesses, for example. Well, that's a perfect example of a program that could be expanded, that could be tripled uh, and still um, not meet the, the demand out there. And so that's, you know, and the, so it's, that's another aspect of, of, of the, the, the equity issue here is it's, you know, we want to broaden solar access for people uh, who have been traditionally excluded or whose communities have been traditionally excluded. And that's, that's a wide range of people in the U.S. Um, so uh, at another time, I think it'd be great for you to have um, Subin on um, yeah. uh, on the podcast to talk about uh, energy equity and energy justice. 
but it is an integral part of what we've been doing from the start. I love it. It's very, I mean, it's an important issue, obviously in the last year, everyone's needed to look into it. And you know, we've, so personally we've worked with in, with reap as well, doing, doing some issues with that. And I think one of the biggest things that we see from people is that they just don't know that this exists. So it's just, it's access to some of these programs that are already there. And then as people know about them and they can use them, that's when then you'll need to, you know, increase the funding for them so that we can, you know, make it better and more, more accessible. And in the short term, even just people don't know, you know, you'll show up at somebody and say, Hey, there's this awesome grant where you can get all this money to go solar. You're a rural business, agriculture business. And they're like, wait, I didn't even know. I had no clue. Like, <laughs> just need something. Yeah. And we see that getting carried in. So I looked at, um, the descriptors of, of the bill and the 30 million solar homes. And there's things like the um, Department of Energy Weatherization Assistance Program, the HUD program. You are presenting where it's initiatives that are already in place. And then you guys are almost making it better and implementing solar into, into those already established initiatives. Do you think it's an obstacle presenting with the focus only on solar? Um, that's a really good question. I think the key here is that we know that this is being talked about in an environment in which there's lots of discussion about climate and clean energy policy. And we are not pretending to be responsible for that whole conversation. What we're doing is saying, look, in the traditional conversations about 100% clean energy, in the traditional conversations about environmental justice, uh, there's a lot of focus on just telling utilities what to do and relying on the incumbent utilities to deliver on whatever the clean energy goals we have are. And it's inherently inequitable because most of the utilities we're talking to when we set that policy are investor-owned utilities. They have their own shareholders and their own financial interests that are often very distinct from customers. And you see that particularly in rooftop solar. And right. so what we're saying is, look, we think that it is most important that a climate approach centers equity by making sure that all of the financial benefits from jobs to energy bill reductions to you know, workforce development, et cetera, to pollution reduction can happen in communities across the country. But that is really the core uh, uh, element of success in it, not just, uh, you know, from a moral and an ethical perspective of making sure that everybody can benefit, but also as a political perspective that, you know, the more folks are going to benefit, the more popular this program is going to be. Um, and so, yeah, there are other things out there like wind power, uh, you know, heat pumps, you know, electric vehicles, all those kinds of things that we think are going to be very important solutions in the way that we address climate. But when it comes to the specific sort of set of three circumstances we were looking at, so there's climate in general, but there's also the economic crisis and sort of this persistent problem of racial inequality and discrimination and, and, and challenges uh, for, for Black and Indigenous and, and other communities of color, uh, rooftop solar is going to provide a much more direct impact and economic opportunity than just about any other technology because you can't put a wind turbine on your roof i mean right. you can if you want it to rip your roof off uh, <laughs> but it's also just not going to produce very much energy right like it's one of those few tools that we have that can really work across the spectrum so you know even if we get to one in four homes there's still going to be you know it'll provide a small but significant fraction of u.s electricity production we're going to need a lot of other resources you know we're not pretending that this solves the yeah. problem but what we're saying is that the, the, the lack of focus on these distributed solutions in the, in the conversations to date uh, are missing out on a huge opportunity to widely distribute the economic benefits and to address uh, racial and economic inequality. Maria, I wanted to get to your question about this. You, you've got it right. The strategy really is, for the most part, to 
expand, uh, enlarge, modify existing programs. And that's something that's a lot easier to do than writing than developing new programs uh, from a political point of view. Um, uh, having said that, there are some things that are new in our policy proposals. For example, a national green bank idea, which is not our idea. It's been kicking around there. There's some interesting green bank experiments in states like Connecticut. So we are proposing some, some, new, some new programs. But I would say, I don't know what the percentage is, John, but I would say probably at least uh, 80% of it is existing programs. Um, and sometimes it's a matter of throwing more money out of something that's working like REAP. But other times we need to broaden the, uh, the access to REAP dollars, for example. The ITC is another example, right? So people have long understood that there's, a, there's something inequitable about the investment tax credit. Uh, there are a lot, a lot of people who couldn't take advantage of it because they don't have a tax burden. So many, many people for many, many years have been uh, benefiting from that. And that's great. I'm not saying we should have <laughs> not done that. I think we should do that. And we, sh we are proposing to extend the investment tax credit. Mm -hmm. um, but we also need to broaden it so that other people can benefit. And so one idea we have, and which is, again, not our idea, it's been around for a while, is to make sure there's a cash option so that everyone can, no matter what their, their tax situation is, can benefit from it. Um, there are other things, for example, with the ITC, where we could expand it to nonprofit organizations, you know, churches and schools, which now are excluded. Um, and, uh, you know, we should, you know, we should address that and make it more broadly accessible. So it's taking something that's been working well, right? The ITC has been fabulous for, for the market. We all know that and we need to extend it. Uh, but we also need to broaden it. And uh, so that's kind of the strat, the two strategies that we're, we have um, uh, throughout the uh, throughout the policy package. I want to touch on that a little bit more, actually, because you mentioned a cash option for it. So is is your plan to have like a direct cash payment to people, or would this be? Like, I I would assume that's probably what it makes most yeah. sense. That's kind of the option for it. That's what we're, we're like. The yeah, that that's the that's the idea, um, and there's a lot of support for this idea as well. Um, the, um, you know, if you go back to what's going to be, give you the biggest bang for the buck for the economy, right? You know, you put money into people's hands right. um, to give to a solar installer, that is a immediate cash infusion. And you can see there's a big delay with the tax credit. And um, uh, so, you know, that, that's, the, that's the idea here. Now, broadening it also means the program is going to be more expensive. That's also true. Um, but this is an investment that is clearly paid off mm -hmm. uh, and, and uh, is going to pay off even more the more we broaden it. So, um, and, and that's just one example. I think, you know, there's some other policy uh, pieces in there that have a similar approach. I would, I would say one of the things, and you kind of alluded to this earlier, Ryan, about this initiative is that we're really being very specific. You, know, you can go on the website and download the 14-page PDF of all of the policy proposals that we have together. So you can see like for the ITC, you know, we've thought through like, yes, let's do a cash grant option, but let's also maybe restrict that to smaller projects. You know, a 50 megawatt solar project's not gonna need a cash grant. They have plenty of access to financial markets and tax equity partners and all the kinds of stuff mm -hmm. that you need to, to use that cash grant. It's, you know, the churches, it's the community institutions, it's the, you know, cooperatively owned, 
50 kilowatt projects on a local building that are, have had a hard time getting access to those benefits. And those are the ones that we want to support, um, you know, or making sure that there's storage that can be attached to them. So there's some resiliency. You know, we've had lots of examples, whether it's in Texas or in California with the wildfires or other places or Puerto Rico, where um, resiliency is, is even more valuable than like the, the electricity cost benefits or the electricity bill savings. It's really about, you know, how can we, uh, you know, keep things going in, in these times of stress and uh, that are induced by climate change. Right. And, and I think that's something that's, it's going to keep happening like this. I mean, like most recently you see Texas, Texas is a state that always thought, Hey, we're going to have no issues. This is not going to be a problem. And now they have this massive out of season, never happened before winter storm and it knocks out like their entire power grid basically. Now there's, there's a larger conversation there about independent power grids versus national power grids. But like, I imagine that that kind of thing happening while very tragic does highlight the need for these expansion programs, right? Yeah, and it, you know, we could get way into the weeds in this too, but I think one of the things that's important to keep in mind about a place like Texas is that if there had been distributed solar and energy storage, it would have helped in the immediate aftermath of the crisis. But it also allows you to like redesign energy markets so that those customers who have storage can actually be supporting the grid in other ways. So maybe next summer when there's a big heat wave and they just need more power available, those customers can tap into the storage they have for a couple of hours and share that power with the grid. And if there's a way they can get paid for that, I'm sure they're happy to do it. Okay. Uh, and you can see how high the prices were going on the Texas market. So I think it's a good reminder that when we look at resiliency, we're not just talking about disaster survival. We're actually talking about making the grid stronger and more cost effective year round. Do you think, and what do you think the processes would need to go into place to make sure that the entire grid infrastructure is ready for 30 million solar homes? I would love to tackle this one because I think there's a couple <laughs> ways to think about this. One is utilities will absolutely tell us there's going to be a problem with this. It will be that impossible positioning <laughs> oh, yeah. from day one will be, oh my God, the reliability. Um, you know, the truth is most places on our grid have very little solar on them right now. Uh, you mm -hmm. know, and so getting to this level of solar obviously is a huge ramp up, but we've got, a, we got a lot of runway before we're going to get into any kinds of issues uh, in terms of expanding solar on the grid system. Most places, most states, solar provides like less than 1% of total electricity consumption. And even in the places where solar tends to cluster, uh, you know, because that's kind of what happens, right? Someone sees a solar panel on the neighbor's roof, they go talk to them about it. They're like, oh, really? You're going to pay back in eight years? This is really interesting. I should maybe look into that. Uh, even in those places in most states, it's still not getting to a threshold where there are needs for like grid upgrades and that kind of thing. Um, but we tried to address that a little bit in our policies. So kind of buried way in there in, in some of those things is there is a requirement for utilities as solar is growing to do what's called a hosting capacity analysis. And it's basically to say, look at the grid, study it regularly and publicly tell folks, here are the places on the grid where capacity is getting tight and here's where we have lots of available capacity. And it would be a way that we could help to direct investment in such a way that it is supporting the grid system. You know, it's a, we're going through that battle right now at a regulatory level in Minnesota, actually doing, we're gonna be interviewing someone later this afternoon who's been working on uh, how they're dealing with it in California. Um, but, you know, that's one, one very specific piece. More broadly, we have lots of places we can learn from. So we can look to Australia, we can look to Hawaii, we can look to California and we can say, okay, 
how have you been dealing with this? Like, what are the strategies that you're doing? Um, I actually just read a study earlier this morning, for example, from Puerto Rico. They don't have a lot of solar, but they're trying to get there. And they just had a study that was released showing that they could get 75% of their electricity from distributed solar. And what they found was that it would actually be cheaper to do that solar and do the distribution upgrades to provide that solar than it would be to upgrade the transmission system and to keep the bigger power plants running. So sure, there'll be some costs with it, but we also have to keep in mind, there's costs to doing stuff other ways too. Yeah. And what we're trying to do here is in the big picture say, all right, well, what's what's the lower cost option? And then what are all the benefits we get from it? Because you know, even if we have to spend $100 billion on distribution infrastructure to do solar, we're distributing $20 billion a year in energy benefits, energy bill credits uh, from getting to 30 million solar homes. So that pays off pretty quick when you kind of put it in that context. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would put it a little more simply than John's absolutely right on this, but this is what the grid is for. This is what we have utilities for. This is why they're regulated monopolies. It's exactly to accomplish what the public needs and mm -hmm. that there is no doubt that that infrastructure has to happen. And the other thing, of course, is this kind of investment in infrastructure is an investment in a lot of jobs that are distributed once again all over the country. So uh, the utilities may squawk. They did, of course, in Hawaii. This is impossible. We can't do this. They do it in California. They do it in Indianapolis. You know, it's everywhere, right? Um, but, you know, that they, they work for us, right? And, um, you know, it's easy to say that given the power imbalance between monopoly utilities and customers, uh, much less, you know, you know, advocacy groups and so forth. Um, but that's their job. And that's, we have to normalize this idea that um, this tech, this technical challenge is a technical challenge that we need to surmount. Yeah. Right, right. And, and we, need to, and we like... need to socialize those costs. I mean, look at all the money and we give utilities to do things that, that benefit them themselves primarily. Um, and, uh, you know, that's not a good public investment generally. Um, depends on what it is we're talking about, but you know, you, you know, they, they love to build things because they have a guaranteed return on investment and, um, they should be getting a guaranteed return on investment from the things that we need. Right. 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 Once upon a time, like accountants used to squawk, that there is no way that we could ever let computers do all of this, you know, this calculation. Yes, and then like, well, how can you trust a computer? Do I, I do it by hand with my calculator and now look at and they, how much stuff has run off of Excel. Just, be, just it just goes. It's yeah. just that's the way technology moves. It does. The you know the horse farms once upon a time said there's no way we could do cars. Like come on. Yeah, yeah. And it's just it's overall just economies of scale. Like the more people that are getting into solar, well, you got to catch up utilities because this is what we're doing here. That's so you know you need to spend money to make money, and it's the same with everything. I sort of want to add something. We've been talking a lot about 30 million solar homes and. As I said earlier, this is about rooftop and also community solar. And there, there is no way that we can broaden solar access to enough people just with rooftop solar. We, we're, we need community solar, but I mean true community solar, not subscription programs run by utility that's basically the same old uh, thing. Um, so to do that, we have a, it, it, there's a, a large segment in our policy package, which is about making community solar real. Number one, community solar is not even a legal option in most states in the United States, mm -hmm. right? There's not an enabling legislation. So one of the things we're doing is we're actually directing that um, every, every utility in every state um, 
must offer a community solar uh, option, right? Just to first of all, get it on the books. And we want, of course, third party competition. So utilities, which of course should be able to run their own programs, but they should be able to compete with independent businesses who want to do it or individuals who want to do their own community solar project with their school or with their, their uh, house of worship or whatever it is. Um, that's the way that we're going to broaden solar access to enough. And so maybe we should have called it 30 million solar households. Um, that didn't really quite uh, roll off the tongue, but no, not quite that, easily. <laughs> I did want to just make sure that we understood that community solar is going to be a, a really big, important part of this from an equity perspective, as well as just, you know, megawatts. Yeah, I so agree. And I want to touch on that too, because you say true access, not a subscription based, not what do you, what's, so explain to everybody who may not know, what is in your, in your mind and, and per the program, true access to community solar? I'll, I'll let John, John, John is great on community solar given his background in Minnesota, so. Yeah, so um, thanks Glenn. ILSR just generally speaking has um, what we call four principles for um, good community solar. Uh, and, and we use that when we're evaluating, when we write up and talk about policies like in Maryland or in Minnesota or in Oregon, there's sort of four key pieces of it. One is that there's a tangible benefit. So this means that the person who's participating has some sort of economic or financial reward for participating in community solar. The second one is that it's flexible in the forms of ownership, which means it's not just a utility run program that offers you to pay a premium for green energy but it could be, you know, some independent business, uh, some or cooperative could own this, uh, the solar project. The third one is that it actually increases renewables, uh, uh, that it's not just about like buying renewable energy credits from projects that already exist and selling them to people, but it's actually gonna build new solar projects. And the fourth one is that it gives access to everybody so that whether it's a low income person or somebody who's gotten a middle income or whatever, that everybody has a chance uh, to participate in the program. So. You know, I, I, sometimes we do this as a study in contrast, right? Lots of utilities have what are called green pricing programs, where for some fraction of a kilowatt hour, I can pay extra for green energy that comes from the utility. And sometimes it's additional, and sometimes they just go out and buy credits from an existing project. Um, the idea here is we're really, we're talking about changing the ownership model. We're saying, this is not about, there's, I guess what we're saying fundamentally is, there's no reason to have a utility monopoly over solar ownership. Like the utility monopoly existed because we needed lots of capital to build nuclear power plants or to build the grid when we first had a grid. But at this point, we don't need that kind of thing. Like private people, ordinary folks can come up with the capital to participate in solar projects or to raise money for a community scale solar project. And so the way that these programs need to be designed is to allow that market to flourish and the utility can participate in it as a competitor with other folks, community scale ones, cooperatives, you know, mm -hmm. churches and nonprofits, uh, all those kinds of entities. But the program really needs to be designed in a way that allows that kind of thing to happen, that ensures that we're paying appropriate compensation for those projects. Uh, and Minnesota is a great example of this, having a very well vetted value of solar calculation that is used to compensate community solar projects to account for the fact that these distributed projects bring a lot more value than ones that have to send energy from far away. And then we fundamentally have to do a really good and careful job of making sure that everyone can get in. And you know, this is actually one where the example of Minnesota's community solar program, which is the biggest and most successful in the country, is not great. That our access for low-income folks is really challenging. There's no explicit policy to make it easier for 
uh, low-income folks to participate, to make sure that it's built in communities of color that have you know, carried heavy pollution burdens. So we need to do more there. And that's a really important piece. And that's written very well into 30 million solar homes policy is that we know that we need to make sure that we are getting to the folks who have been paying the highest price for our fossil fuel monopoly economy and give them the chance to get into a, you know, have the choice to get into a competitive market for community solar. Uh, no matter what their uh, financial situation. What about net metering? Do you guys tackle that? Yes. Uh, <laughs> depending on the version you have, we may not have had it in there at the time, but we are. We do have a policy that would require utilities uh, based on some existing federal jurisdiction to offer net metering or a comparable alternative if they're so, once solar grows to a really significant amount of their mm -hmm. Uh, uh, of their electricity sales. So we do see that as a really important piece, especially for those few community or few states where they have not had net metering policy and it's very difficult to do distributed solar as a result. I mean, one of the things about net metering, when we originally discussed it, uh, I think we were, were somewhat reluctant to put it in the federal context. You know, there was that recent fight at FERC over the net the petition to weaken or eliminate net metering or at least states abilities to administer and manage those programs. But we heard from a lot of people that metering is an essential piece of the solar market. We certainly agree at Solar United Neighbors and uh, uh, we, we decided to, to put it in. And so we're, uh, we're in the process now of putting some components on, on net metering here, basically to make sure that people have the right to net meter or in, a, in, in the way John put it, of course, is I think right, or a, a comparable system, though, it's not clear that there is a comparable system. <laughs> there's, not, there's not much. I think because one of the things that we run into, you know, in, in Illinois is a little bit more specific as far as the utilities. So there's not a whole bunch, but there are a few cooperative and they all have net metering in some form. There's just some are better and some are worse. Like you, there you have your big ones that will give you dollar for dollar where it really makes it more benefit. And then you've got the smaller ones that are only giving wholesale rate for anything sent back. So if for those communities, then yes, they do technically have a net metering, but it's not really terribly beneficial. You know, then you have to start talking about, about storage as a different option. So is that something you guys are touching on too, is making this requirement dollar for dollar, you're making a one for one credit or just a credit in general? Uh, we are specifying that it should be based on the retail rate. And we really are in, in doing so, I think wading into this longstanding argument uh, and really the myth about sort of utility scale resources versus distributed ones. Uh, you know, we hear this argument from utilities a lot where they uh, suggest that uh, solar farms that they build and own will be cheaper than ones that we put on our roofs. Uh, and it really is just this farce of, in terms of the understanding about what an electric bill is actually like, right? Like an electric bill is about, there's like three pieces to it, relatively equal. One is the cost to generate power. And second, the second third is the cost to send it over transmission lines. And the third is to distribute it, you know, to homes and businesses at the local level, the poles and wires in our backyards. And I think what we're essentially saying is that in general, solar on a rooftop provides all three of those things, right? The generation, the transmission, the distribution are all included because it's right there where I'm using electricity. And whereas, you know, a utility scale uh, project, it might have really cheap electricity at the point of generation, but it's got to get delivered and that delivery costs something. And so we're trying to push back against the way that utilities have suggested that rooftop solar is somehow competing directly with this power source that's you know, miles away and has to be sent over transmission lines at an additional cost. 
um, by saying that no, actually we should we should net meter it and it should be the retail rate because that's the comparable cost for the utility to deliver it uh, uh, to a similar location. Uh, you know, there's no free delivery and there's no free lunch uh, in the electricity business. Uh, solar is providing uh, on rooftops is getting you that power right there, but your other kinds of power aren't. So uh, we're trying to head, get at that head on. We're saying that, you know, folks should get retail rate compensation for the power they produce that they use and the power that they send back to the grid, you know, up to the threshold of their own consumption kind of best practices there. Um, but really trying to make sure that we also respect the fact that this has generally been a state policy issue. And so we're looking at, you know, where is the appropriate place to make this hook to make it clear that the, the federal government does have jurisdiction in a way that uh, will not interfere with the way that states set policy otherwise. Yep. I like that you pointed out so, so clearly as a farce, because it is, because that the idea of utilities trying to claim that, that it's going to be competing with, you know, their, their larger scale power production at a different location is, would be like a grocery store saying you're not allowed to grow cucumbers in your backyard because you're not, you're going to compete with the cucumbers you can buy from us. Like that just, it just doesn't make sense. It's just, it's just a dumb argument. I've often compared it to like, if you ordered something from Amazon and they said, well, you're going to have to drive to our Chicago area distribution center to pick that up. Right. Like that's yeah. the equivalent of a utility scale energy project. Sure. It's really cheap, but you got to drive and go get it. Uh, you know, or, or we can charge you the amount to get it there, which lo and behold ends up being about the same amount that that rooftop solar project would cost. Right. Of course. Uh, I know we're coming up on the top of the hour, so we're, we're getting close. One last thing that I wanted to touch on specifically, you know, we, we've talked about a lot, but it's jobs. And obviously, and not my question is going to point more towards not from the jobs created by going solar, because that's something we've talked about at length and everybody knows that infrastructure is going to keep that. But one of the big things that you see in, I don't know the right word, but people talking against, uh, against solar projects and, and large scale solar um, implementation is saying that what about the jobs from the current energy sources? So your, your coal miners, like what happens to those when we don't need that anymore? So does this, does your bill, does your policy address what we do with any of those industries that as we stop using that dirtier power, then they can have job training or anything like that? We do have some specific uh, investment in workforce training uh, in the policy, and it's going to focus um, both on sort of on the job training as well as like community and technical college and, and other places where we can have that pipeline in the workforce. Um, but I want to be candid, like we're not solving that problem as part of this policy program. Like we're very aware of it. We're very supportive of uh, transition for fossil fuel workers, workers and communities. Uh, ILSR is written on that both. We think it's important to both be taking care of the workers themselves, but also the communities whose tax base is very reliant on those fossil fuel plants. Mm -hmm. um, but we're not trying to solve all the problems in the world with this policy. Yeah. We're really trying to say, how do you build a really good, you know, climate and economic and racial equality policy in one package uh, that is unique to this time uh, and, and to the challenges that we have to face. Uh, but we're very much in alignment with other policies that we've seen around economic transition, very aware that there are a lot of communities, whether it's uh, I'm trying to remember the name, um, in Sherburne County, Minnesota, they've got a coal plant that's closing. They've been looking at the cost of that. I know in Buffalo, New York, they had a coal plant that closed. They've had to deal with the transition there. And we're definitely very supportive of ways that we can make sure those workers either get 
you know, early retirement, if they're close to retirement, uh, you know, wage insurance, job retraining, the whole thing, uh, the whole gambit, but it's not within the scope of what we're trying to address. I mean, I, I might just, just quickly add that we're going to need a lot more electricians to, to, than we have now in order to meet this demand, to reach a goal like that. And that is, in effect, a way of creating these pathways. Now, we need to make sure people get trained, have the opportunities. Um, uh, and, you know, we're going to be talking to uh, Senator Manchin about the benefits to West Virginia for something like 30 million solar homes. Um, you know, not just about the REAP program, which, you know, involves his constituents, but also these new jobs, which are desperately needed in places like uh, West Virginia. Great. I think it's important that it's at least addressed because obviously that's, that's something and, and there's a lot out there for it too. It's important that because um, that's going to be in anything you're trying to pitch, that's going to be one of the first first big ones you guys know that anybody's going to come back against. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that you guys are are supporting that and it is it is not a main focus but it's part because you're exactly right john you can't solve all the world's problems with with one one initiative for sure i would just add briefly we do have a, in the def definition we have of marginalized communities we do include communities that had a disproportionate reliance on fossil the fossil fuel economy so there will be some prioritization of funds in this program writ large toward those communities that will be harmed the most in terms of the energy transition um, so we do have something in there, but it's not comprehensive. Yeah, well, it's fantastic that at least it's included in there at some level, because that is very important for them, for sure. So before we let you go, can you share with our listeners where they can find you and learn more about 30 million solar homes? Uh, I can start with that. So first of all, for, for Solar United Neighbors, uh, we have a website, of course, solarunitednaybors.org. Um, and... Um, uh, ISLR has a, a great website with a lot of great resources on it. Um, so I encourage everybody to go check it, check that work out. Um, on 30 million solar homes, again, the website is 30millionsolarhomes.org.org. And I want to encourage everybody, if you're involved in a solar business uh, or you're involved in an advocacy group uh, of any kind, it doesn't have to be climate or energy or uh, clean energy related, uh, you can you can put your name up there as a supporter of this project. You can uh, add your name. You go to the website, scroll down, it'll say become a partner. You can um, add your name to this letter to Congress about 30 million solar homes. Also, individuals can sign the petition on the homepage. And it's really important that we show that there is support for these ideas. And just to add, you can find out all about our distributed solar policy work at Institute for Local Self-Reliance, ILSR.org. But uh, Imagine most folks listening to this should head over to 30millionsolarhomes.org, see the campaign work. Uh, we're excited to be working with Sun and Initiative for Energy Justice on this, and uh, we'd love to have other, ones, other folks join us. Perfect. Well, John, Glenn, thank you so much for joining us, and please keep in touch. We'd love to see where this goes, and we'll definitely sign up uh, to get more information as well. So thank you guys Thank you so, so much. much. Yeah, thanks for having us.